I want us to take our Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John tonight. We'll continue our overview series in the book of 1 John, the first of three general epistles known as 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. It is believed that John establishes himself in the city of Ephesus. In fact, he can sometimes be referred to among the church fathers or in early church history as the bishop of, of Ephesus. And uh, it, there seems to be a, a connection that exists there. In fact, I think, I think that's right. And, and I, I think we can see some of the fruit of his placement in Ephesus, his influence in Ephesus in some really interesting ways um, in the New Testament's development. One of the things that I always like to point to, I think is kind of fun and, and uh, lend some weight to the personality, uh, the personalities involved in the composition of the New Testament and how this sort of all comes together. It's Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel, that provides us with more information about the, the infancy of Jesus and even Mary's uh, conception of Jesus, her pregnancy, and her interactions with Elizabeth. When you start, you start to think about that and why that may be the case, and certainly the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a major factor in that, but Luke has access to that information somehow, some way along the way. Well, Luke is the missionary companion of who? The Apostle Paul who writes to the church at Ephesus, spends a considerable amount of time in Ephesus. John the Apostle, the beloved Apostle, is entrusted with the care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. One of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross is, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. It's a poetic way of saying, John, my beloved friend, take care of my mama. And mama, take care of John, my beloved friend. Presumably, Mary would have been a part of, of John's ministry there in Ephesus. She would have been under his care in a patriarchal society. Closeness to John, who had committed to providing for her needs, would have been an important part of, of her life. Well, it's always made all the sense in the world to me that Luke would have access to more information regarding the early life of Jesus, even the infant life of Jesus, than anyone else, given his placement in the city of, of Ephesus alongside the Apostle Paul and John being located there with Mary at his side. God is truly working providentially through the real-life experiences of those who are participants in the composition of the New Testament in some really neat and kind of fun ways to give consideration to. Sometimes we think of these people as these far-off distant characters. They're, they're figures in a, in a book or a movie in our mind that may be somewhat impersonal, but these are very real people. John with a very real personality, one concerned with love and affection for those around him, one who invested himself in the well-being of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and seemed to have a deep bond established with the people of Ephesus. It seems that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are each written to the churches around the city of Ephesus. They are general letters, it seems, intended to be distributed among the churches, the multiple churches of Ephesus, but were to be read aloud, and all of those churches would have acknowledged the authority of John the Apostle. He's referred to just as the elder in 2nd and in 3rd John. He seems to hold a special place in the life of that church. 1st John is among the more practical and straightforward books of the New Testament. Often when a new believer comes to faith in Jesus and, and we're pointing them to the Bible, where do I start? Where do I begin? 
we often point them to the Gospel of John because it's so simple, it's so straightforward. The same human author behind the Gospel of John is also the Apostle John who writes here 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And that very simple and straightforward uh, writing style that you see displayed in the Gospel of John is again at work here in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I always grin a little when I hear someone recommend a new believer read the Gospel of John first, because although there is a beautiful simplicity about the Gospel of John, the, 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 the newest of believers, babes in Christ, can wait around in the teaching of John's Gospel without drowning. But the deepest of theologians can swim around and nearly drown in the depth of what John is saying in spite of the beautiful simplicity with which he writes. The same can be said of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but especially 1st John. If you've been one of those people, and most have at some point in their journey with Jesus, who's ever worried about or wondered about the security of your salvation, am I Am I truly saved? Am I still saved in spite of some shortcoming or backsliding in my experience? 1 John provides an enormous level of insight into how one can be assured of their salvation. Some of the more common misconceptions that exist within the church today are addressed here within the book of 1 John. There is a tendency in some circles to disconnect our practical life from our confessional life. In other words, we like to say the right things with our mouths and believe those things will justify us even when what we say with our mouth is at complete odds with what we actually do in our life. Well, the reality is if you want to know what someone believes, you, don't, you probably ought not listen so closely to what they say as much as you observe what it is that they do. And John sort of puts those two things back together. The confession and who we truly are in our heart. Uh, John provides us with certain tests of faith. In fact, much of 1 John is about how we can assess ourselves to see that we are truly in the faith. Now the trick is, John is not so much concerned with providing the congregation with the ability to assess themselves. He's concerned with providing the congregation with the ability to assess those who are troubling the church or who have left the church. There is in one episode here described in 1 John a scenario in which there's a group that's left the church and they seem to have defected. Now for a time, they were very much a part of the church and now the church is left wondering, were they ever really Christians in the first place? Or what do we do with them now? Now they're holding to these different positions. They've come to different conclusions. They're expressing different kinds of convictions. How do we regard them now? Are they brothers? Or are they altogether outside the faith? And John says they were among us, but they went out from us because they were never of us in the first place. Now what he ultimately provides us with in giving the church this tool for evaluating the, the spiritual condition of those who depart the church is a resource whereby we can evaluate ourselves and find affirmation, find assurance of our own personal salvation. Most reduce what John describes in these five chapters to three tests, and I think that's an appropriate way that we can look at 1 John. It gives us three tests of faith. The test of how we live. What are you actually doing? Is the life that you live consistent with what you say with your mouth? 
Now, people can get tripped up with what John says because he says things in really black and white terms. But in those black and white terms, he's expressing the, the, the notion, the concept, that it's the pattern of your life that establishes some credibility, that lends credence to the confession that you make with your mouth. How do you live? And then the second test is how you love. John says again and again and again, if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar and there is no truth in you. There, there's, a, there's a turning of the heart that happens at the moment of our conversion that enables in us an ability to love others that exceeds our natural capacity for love and for affection. This, this was, for me, one of the earliest assurances of my faith. I, don't, I, think, I think many, many people, when they come to faith, really struggle with doubts in the early phases. You know, you see certain things in yourself or you remember certain things about your past and you wonder, how could God ever forgive me for that? Or how can I be right with God and still wrestle with sin or, or even tendencies or our thought life? That was the thing that plagued me in those early days, the things that I thought. When your brain is trained to think in a certain way for all of your life and then there's this abrupt change of worldview, how can I be right? And these thoughts continue to come again and again and again, how can that be right? And I know as a, as a lost person, largely because of the way I came up and my experiences, I was just a mean kid. Hopefully that's hard for you to imagine. But I'm, I'm telling you, I was mean. And I mean exceptionally mean. Exceptionally mean. And, I, and, and immediately after, it was, I, I could walk you through, but I'll save you the gory details, an, an episode soon after my conversion where there was an opportunity for me to be as mean as I had always been. And I just didn't have the ability to do it. I couldn't see it through. And, and I, I would have done what I had the opportunity to do months prior without even a thought. In fact, I would have taken a certain glib delight in doing such a mean, dreadful thing. But God had, God had turned my heart in that way. I can remember being in that moment, and the natural reaction was, do it, do it, do it. And then, and then finding this resistance in the Spirit, to, and being in that moment just kind of stunned and speechless, that, wow, I really am not who I used to be apart from Jesus. That's what John presses again and again. We're going to look at some text in just a moment, but I want you to look for these tests as we do. And you ought to look for these tests in your own experience as well. How are you living? Is the way you live your life consistent with the confession of your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that your life has been radically changed by the power of the gospel? Has your heart been equipped to love neighbor as Jesus would love your neighbor? That's a surefire assurance of the work of God in your life. And then the third thing is what you believe. John just goes back to this again and again. What do you believe? Do, do you believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God? And he presses, especially in this first section of chapter 1, the surety of the gospel, that what we have proclaimed to you is indeed true. And he talks about the various ways that they know this to be true. In addition to these three tests, and they occur again and again and again, my, my chapters 1 through 5 in my Bible are just marked up with these different tests, with just a little note in the margin. This is a test of faith. This is a test of the way we live our life, or a test of obedience. This is a test of love. Those three tests appear again and again and again. But you'll also see as we read through, if you read through in your own time the full book, 
something of the results of our faith in Jesus. John says, these things I have written to you. And he uses that language again and again and again. There, there, there are at least six of those in these five chapters. These things I have written to you. And we'll look at five of those in the time that we have together. Where John says, I want that the product of this writing would be this, A, B, C, D, E. One of, one of those, the six that we've left out of our list, is just John stating in the negative what's already been stated in the positive. But in each instance, he's saying, if you get a hold of the gospel, if it really gets down into your heart, in the deep, dark crevices of your once depraved and calloused heart, it will produce these outcomes in your life, outcomes that answer in the affirmative those tests of faith, how you live, how you love, and how you believe. First John chapter 1, let's look at those first four verses, and I'll show you what I mean. John says, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. And we've seen and heard, what we've seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things to you so that, your, so that our joy or your joy may be complete. So the test here is what you believe. And John says, we're assured when he speaks here of, of we, when he speaks in the first person plural, he has in mind, in my estimation, the apostles. The apostolic ministry of the apostles has declared to you, our experience has been, that we have, we have seen Jesus with our eyes. And there, there's, the language here is, we saw him in, in the general sense. We looked at him, we saw him, but also that we observed him intently. Not only did we see him at some distance or encounter him in life, but we have critically examined him. We have looked him over. We have gotten in close. I think of Thomas expressing doubt and saying, except I see the hands in his hands, the holes in his hands and in his side, I'll not believe. And what does Jesus do? He draws near. And Thomas critically examines the Lord Jesus, as do those other apostles. And what they observe are the holes in his hands and the scar in his riven side. John says, we have seen him and we have observed him intently and we have heard him and we have heard him intently. He is who he said he was. John says, our declaration to you is not based on secondhand information. We have experienced the eternal Son of God firsthand. And that testimony is the testimony that we've brought to you. Trust us, John says. This is the message of the gospel. We testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we've seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If you do any reading in 1 John whatsoever, you'll run into a great deal of conversation about what's called Gnosticism, which seems to be a late first century development 
of the idea that being in fellowship with God or being right with God is about attaining a certain level of secret knowledge. I'm skeptical as to whether Gnosticism was a real issue in the churches at Ephesus, but there are many. And you, you won't read anything critical that, that really doesn't address the notion of Gnosticism. What does seem to be an issue is that they had in their mind that there were perhaps other ways of enjoying fellowship with God, whether it was some secret level of knowledge or uh, religious practice or the abuse of their bodies and asceticism or some other mechanism for drawing near to God. What John is making abundantly clear is that the way you enjoy fellowship together as a church and the way you enjoy fellowship with God the Father is through His Son, Jesus Christ. We are bound together as a body not by similar backgrounds or shared economic or social experiences, even a shared ethnic identity or cultural experience, but by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what binds us together. And John presses at that, not just here, but at a number of places along the way. The way we are held together as a body and the way the churches John sought to address here were held together as a body was not by these shared human experiences, but by the power of the gospel. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another is an assured result of entrusting our soul to Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. In verse 4, John makes the first of these purpose statements. John writes this way. You may remember in the close of the Gospel of John, he says, we've written these things in order that you might believe. The function of John's Gospel was to win people to faith in Jesus. He always states his purpose. But there are a number of purposes stated in the writing of 1 John. The first uh, mentioned here in verse 4. John says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, I don't know, and some of your translations may reflect this, but there is some debate as to whether we should translate, we're writing these things so that our joy might be complete or that your joy might be complete. If it is an our joy, which does seem to be the case, John intends, it seems, to include the church in this as well. I want you to come to healthy gospel conclusions so that your joy and my joy, John seems to be saying, might be made full. John's going to rejoice in that the church has embraced with all its heart the message of the gospel. You're going to be filled with all joy, John says, because that's the product of the gospel in us. When you have settled the message of the gospel in your heart, the product is, is joy in your life. I, I try to say in, in, any, in any real substantive gospel conversation that what you're looking for can only be found in Jesus. There is a perception of the gospel, a perception of the church, and a perception of Christianity that sees us as these joyless people who just have a checklist of things that God doesn't allow us to do. But I would have you to know, and I hope you know, that that's really not what our existence is about at all, but a continual delighting in what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus. I have lived on the other side. I am convinced that if there were a way to find lasting joy outside of Jesus, I would have found it and no doubt indulged in it before coming to faith in Christ. But the joy, the satisfaction, the fulfillment 
the gladness that I found in Jesus is unmatched by anything that this world could ever offer. Our joy is made complete in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look down at the next section, this, this is a section that focuses on how we live our life. The test here is of one of how we live. We, we might even get a little more specific with our test and say here John is pointing us toward the, the testing or evaluation of our, our fellowship. Look at verse 5. Now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John, he's, this is simple, right? And yet it's so complex at the same time, and people can really stumble with, with some of what John says here. If you say that you enjoy fellowship with Jesus, but you continually live in sin, John says you're a liar and there's no truth in you. Now the balance to that is, John says in verse 10, if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his Word is not in us. So surely John isn't referencing here the absence of any sin whatsoever. When I was at Mississippi State, there used to be these preachers who would show up throughout the semester, and I didn't care for them then, and I don't care for them now. They, they would come, and they were really hateful. And, and it kind of puts you in the mind of Westboro Baptist Church people. Y'all remember that group? And they, you know, they go around with the signs about God hating all sorts of people, virtually anyone that's not a part of their little church. These guys were sort of like that. And if you ever engaged them in any kind of conversation, they always pointed to 1 John. They were theological. The theological term is they were perfectionist. And if you asked them, they would say, we don't have any sin. We've reached a level of perfection. And they would point you to certain verses in 1 John that had reference to having no sin. However, they would conveniently skip over what John says in verse 10, which is if you say you don't have any sin, you make him a liar and his word is not in you. There, there is no sinless perfection in this life. But there should be a Godward trajectory about our life where from one failure to the next restoration, God is moving us along in the progress of sanctification, molding us and making us over in the image and the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Abraham provides a great example of this. You know, when I think about Abraham, I think about a brother who lied on his wife twice. If you're going to lie on somebody, don't lie on your wife, you know? And he lied on his wife in ways that compromised her sanctity. But if you look at the big picture of Abraham's life, the composite picture of Abraham's life, it was a life of righteousness, a Godward trajectory about his life, having believed God and that belief having been accredited to him as righteousness and bearing itself out in the way God was at work and moving in the fulfillment of promises across the span of Abraham's life. John is not saying to us in this passage that you're going to attain some level of sinless perfection, but he is saying that there ought to be growth and grace across the span of our life. And we're warned elsewhere in the New Testament that it's a dangerous, dangerous thing 
to resist the work of the Spirit in that growth, in that progress and sanctification. So again, the test here is, is how you live your life. And in my experience, most of the people who are deeply troubled about their assurance in salvation are deeply troubled not because they don't understand the promises of God, but because they're looking at the fruit their life is bearing and they're wondering how it is that a heart that has been changed by the gospel can continue to bear fruit unworthy of regeneration and repentance. Let that conviction have its way. Let it work in you and create in you fruit worthy of repentance and regeneration. Most of the time when people come to me specifically, if it gets to a place where a person says, Pastor, I have to have a conversation with you, we have to talk about this issue, and they'll come and they'll talk about their conversion experience, and they'll talk about the way they're living their life, and they'll want me to say something that will alleviate that weight in a moment. And, and if you do that to me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say to you, go and live with the weight of conviction and let the Spirit wash over you and whatever it is that God is intending to do by this and allow that God would have his way over the course of time. Now, there are times when there's exceptions to that. Godly sorrow stirs repentance, but a worldly sorrow just burdens the heart, creates a weight of guilt, and, and certainly we shouldn't in the gospel live under the weight of guilt. But there are times when godly sorrow is simply attending our persistence in prayer, and I'm not going to say anything to seek to alleviate that. And you're not going to find anything in God's Word that's going to alleviate that. You're going to have to lay with the work of God's Spirit, the weight of that conviction over time until God has perfected that sanctifying work in you. In chapter 2 and verse number 1, John gives us another of those purpose statements. He says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. I'm writing these things to you so that you would be invited away from sin. One of the philosophical challenges existing in John's context was this idea that our earthly life and our spiritual life after death were disconnected. We've been talking about this in 1 Peter. This is a common idea in the Greco-Roman world. And it's really pressed upon by those who are opposing the church around the city of Ephesus, those that are a counter to uh, the, the churches that John was actively a part of in and around the city of Ephesus. And John is saying, listen, I'm writing to you the, the message of the gospel in order that you would not sin, so that there wouldn't be this enticement to sin, so that you would put away this notion that we eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. I want you to embrace the gospel, to understand that the spiritual life that awaits us after our death is the direct product of our firm commitment to the message of the gospel in our earthly life. And we've been dealing with this at some length on Sunday morning for the past couple of weeks. I'm writing to warn you against sin, to call you away from sin. But I want you to know, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The idea here is we have a defense attorney. We have one who defends us against the accusation of Satan. We have someone on the inside who pleads our case with the judge. The picture here is that Jesus is our defense attorney and Jesus is the judge. 
If you're tracking with me, this is a pretty sweet scenario if you're the defendant, right? Because not only do you have a strong advocate in the person of Jesus, he happens to also be the judge. John is saying if you sin, there's no need to despair. Because by the blood of Jesus, everything's going to be okay. He's our advocate. He's the propitiation of our sins. That's a hotly debated term in biblical study circles. The question is, does propitiation, as it's used here in our passage, speak of the wrath of God against us being satisfied by Jesus' death? In other words, is, is it just the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus, or is it that the wrath of God is turned away or satisfied through the death of Jesus? That may seem kind of an insignificant uh, distinction, I would suggest that it is an insignificant distinction, and I would respond to that question with an emphatic yes. It means both of those things and more. At the heart of propitiation, the no notion of propitiation is that the wrath of God against us has been satisfied. So Jesus is our defense attorney, Jesus is the judge, and the sentence has already been served. That's what John is saying in our passage. We needn't despair should we sin, but sin should not be the pattern of our life because of the radical change wrought in us by the power of the gospel. Verse 3, this is how we're sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I've come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walks. Do you see how John is saying the test of our faith and, and to some extent the source of our assurance is reflecting on our life and our willingness to obey, to heed the commands that he sets before us. He does the same thing with love in verse 9. The one who says he's in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother remains in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So again and again, you this test of how you live, this test of how you love, and periodically even a test of, of how you believe or what you believe. And then there are those instances where these tests are mingled together. Look for a moment over at chapter 4 and verse number 7. John says here, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us assurance, or given assurance to us from his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. 
We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. So John is essentially capturing those three tests in those few verses. You can know that you are in God and that God is in you by virtue of a desire to fulfill his commandments. You can know that you are in God and God is in you by virtue of the fact that you love neighbor. And you have a, I would add here, you have a capacity for loving your enemy. It's easy to love your neighbor. Jesus teaches us that much. It's no credit to you if you love your friends or you love your family. It is a credit when you find the capacity for loving your enemy. That's a direct product of the gospel's work in your heart. And, and he connects these to our confession of faith. You can't love if you don't believe the right things. If you don't believe the gospel, you're not going to find the capacity for love. If you don't believe the message of the gospel, you're not going to find a capacity for obedience. How are you living? And how do you love? And what do you believe? These are the tests of our faith. John could not be clearer about the message of the gospel here. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. So these tests occur again and again and again. The last of those, these things I have written statements comes in verse 13 of chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse number 13. John says, the one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. J just this past week, I was in a, what I would call a spiritual conversation with a few people in, in the context of that conversation. Someone said of a departed loved one, we hope that he is in heaven well i knew the person and unless something happened at the 11th hour they are not in heaven because they did not believe the gospel nor did they seem to live obediently to the commands of christ nor did there seem to be any exhibition of of love in their life that's cold reality but it is the reality nonetheless every everyone turns into a universalism uh, universalist when it begins to get to be about people that we know or have some relation with but i'm just telling you that our feelings are are not a factor in this equation faith in the message of the gospel before it is everlastingly too late is the only thing that can save the soul from sin and i'm always troubled by the use of this language of of hope only believer at that table but we were definitely in the minority and, and again and again, the statement was made, I, I hope I will go to heaven. Well, that's always a sure sign to me that that individual knows nothing of what it means to go to heaven. It's about the same as someone saying to me they're trying to be a Christian. That is the antithesis of the message of the gospel. To try to be a Christian is the, is, is the message of Satan. It is not the message of the gospel. John is saying to us, you can know with great assurance that your destiny is bound to heaven by faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith in Jesus Christ not only is the assurance of eternity in heaven with Jesus, it is also the guarantee of a life that has been transformed by the power of the gospel in the here and now, such that we live for him. We delight in his commands, and we find a new capacity to love those uh, maybe that we otherwise would not so much have a capacity for loving. If you're one of those people who likes things in black and white, 
the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are books for you. And the Gospel of John would be a book for you as well. John makes it crystal clear. Now, I don't think we need to shrink back from these things. I don't think we have to be apologetic about things, these things. I want you to be careful as you read books like 1st John that are so concrete, so black and white, that you don't lose touch with the reality that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. You, you cannot be saved by being obedient to God. You cannot be saved by being kind to your neighbors or loving your enemies. You can only be saved by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God. But that belief manifests itself in obedience and love and a steadfast commitment to that confession that indeed Jesus Christ is Lord. I hope that right now, Every soul in this room enjoys that level of assurance. But I want you to know, if you don't, that you can. In the gospel, you can enjoy a level of assurance that removes all doubt. Any, any, any notion that anything short of heaven awaits you. Any notion that your convictions are anything short of absolutely true can be dispelled by faithful obedience to the message of the gospel. Come to him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments to spend together reflecting on the very simple and straightforward truths of these five chapters. God, hide them away in our heart that we might not sin against you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.